0: Hello, and welcome to the next installment of our Pazina Perspectives podcast series. I'm Bill Lipsey, president of our firm, and I'm joined today by our CEO and co CIO, Rich Pazina. Welcome to our third podcast together. In our first conversation, which, which hard to believe it was back in March. Um, so, so now eight months ago, we focused on a discussion about what it's like to manage a value firm during a crisis. And, and then in July, we sat together again and reviewed the most common question that we get is why does value actually work anymore? And, and if you think it does, how do you know? So here we are mid-November and, uh, I would, I would say it's, it's fair to say how the world has changed. The election's finished. We've got this new administration that's, that's going to, going to come in, in, in January. Pfizer has announced really stunning preliminary results about a vaccine. So maybe there's light at the end of the recession tunnel and, um, One of the subjects that we've discussed internally over the years and is a a regular source of questions from clients and consultants is, especially during these kinds of cycles, is why don't you guys change or adjust or adapt your investment process? And and I, I think implied in that question is a belief that value as we practice it doesn't work anymore, but but let's start with sort of a basic question. Shouldn't you be thinking about making more adjustments to your investment process in this new world?
1: Look, I think a lot of the questions stem from the, the fact that people have in their mind what value is. It's not what we have in our mind they have in their minds that value is a factor, that value is low price to book or low price to earnings. And they're sort of saying in that question, don't you guys know, do you read the data? Don't you know that book value is flawed? Don't you know that companies manipulate their earnings? And isn't the world a different place? But you know, when you define value, as the price you pay for a company compared to what its long-term future cash flows might be, I don't really know how you can say, you should change that. What would you change it to? We're, We're not gonna think about the future earnings capability. I mean, that part of it never, never made sense to me. So the fundamental basic view of what we do hasn't changed. And it it can't change because it's arithmetic. And so that doesn't mean that we haven't tweaked our process over time. That doesn't mean that we don't alienate people who think we're stuck in our ways. But the reality is that when let's just say growth or momentum strategies spiral up and I would call it out of control on the upside, you have to sit back and say, was this driven by fundamental cash flows or was it driven by something other than that that would make you have a different perspective on answering that question? Let me just use, a very straightforward example microsoft right microsoft 10 years ago was in the 20s stocks up tenfold in 10 years if you want to do the arithmetic that's 25% a year compound returns the earnings have compounded at 8% a year so that means the multiple just gets higher and higher and higher you know 10 years ago we bought microsoft Microsoft was sitting there, didn't have a low price to book. It had a franchise value that had a stream of future cash flows that was not properly valued in the marketplace. In fact, you didn't have to believe any growth at the time to say that this was an interesting investment. And by the way, nobody in the world believed there was any growth. And so, in fact, they thought the opposite. They thought their franchises were at risk. And when they turned out not to be at risk, and then when the company hit on the cloud, the stock took off. Now, And we um, sold way, way, way too early. But it's not because we didn't believe in value. It's because the forecasts of future cash flows that you had to make for the arithmetic to work started to become, I mean, when we sold it, it wasn't a stretch. We thought they were fairly valued. But we found other things that were more interesting to buy and the people that continued to ride it up and ride it up and ride it up to the point where it got a multiple of 30 plus times earnings had now had assumptions that seemed particularly unreasonable to us in order to get a decent return so what should we do should we say eh, never mind we're not going to do arithmetic anymore because microsoft is running and they have a dominant position in the cloud and whatever, um, but when you, have to, when you have to make forecasts about a company's future that can't be seen with their current businesses, meaning you have to make something up about their long-term growth rate, that's, that, we don't think that's value investing, okay? That's our definition. Now, so that's what we do. And it's not price to book, it's not price to earnings, it's price compared to a long-term expected stream of cash flows.
0: You know, you're making me think about a story that you and I lived through in the internet bubble that we were called in our very early days by one of the consulting firms to come and meet with this endowment foundation. We went and met with them. We asked, we were a new firm. We didn't, we didn't, have, we didn't think we had the, the experience yet to be in that room. And we asked them, what, what's causing you to, to, to make this um, evaluation of us right now? And they said, well, our value manager quit. And we didn't really understand what that meant. How could you quit? And what they said is, well, they've decided to shut their firm. They can't take the pressure of their clients constantly questioning their their practice. And so I'd be curious to hear you talk about, Rich, what you think we've done over the course of time that's caused us to not deviate while some of our competitors have regularly deviated or closed.
1: Yeah, and, and Bill, I would add to that, we're seeing some of that happen again. I mean, we read some very long-standing dedicated value investors that are just closing because the performance has been, it actually hasn't been terrible. It's just not been as good as you could have had if you bought a broad market index. And the broad market index has obviously been heavily influenced by non-traditional value investments like technology. So what is it about us? Well. It's funny, I, I I don't know that I have a great answer to that question, other than that we're kind of weird. Um, we, when things go, like when we had this pandemic, and if you remember, we suffered from several years of, of underperformance as people started fearing another recession. So in 2018 and 2019, they were not good value years. Prior to that, we were kind of having, riding a kind of decent value cycle. And so at the end of 19, we had some pretty good value opportunities. And then all our stocks fell in half, literally all. Now, what do you do when you're in that state? Some people just say, this doesn't work anymore, let's get out. Some people, you know, have rules, my stock goes down 25%, I get out because I must not know what the hell I'm talking about. Um, But for us, we got energized. So what is it about it? It's a culture that's built on literally decades of instilling this in the minds of our entire team. And it's not just the two or three senior portfolio managers. It's not just the analysts. It's the clients people who are dealing with their clients. It's the marketing people who are producing podcasts like this. It's the the operations people. Um, There's no infighting. There's like, it's like a, a circling of the wagons that happens. That doesn't mean there's no soul searching. There's plenty of soul searching. And we can talk about the changes we've made over time based on the lessons we've learned. Because I think we get accused of just, you just guys don't pay any attention to anything and you just do what you're doing and the world marches on and you don't march on. It's quite the contrary. We're constantly, constantly thinking about ways that we could make our process better. Most of them we reject because most of them involve not being a value manager. And so I, I don't know if I answered your question, but- Yeah,
0: you know, what you just said is so interesting because some of the language that the marketplace has adopted to describe value managers has shifted over our lifetimes, right? I mean, they use, they use adjectives in front of the word value to somehow describe something different. It's exactly what you're talking. So they use the word quality value. They use the words relative value. And they, they, they sort of describe it as um, this is better than the pejorative deep value. And so, I, I, in fact, look, it's a conversation that goes on a lot right now in this kind of environment or before this week where – it, did, it wasn't clear when the value cycle might turn. And so how, how do you respond when folks say, gee, I'd rather have that other brand of value?
1: I just try to look at the data. That's basically how I respond. I remember when we went through the financial crisis and all of a sudden the low vol crowd was in boat. All you gotta do is buy low vol stocks and you'll beat the market. And I'm thinking, how does that make any sense at all in anybody's view of common sense or well accepted financial theory? It, it, was, it was almost preposterous, right? So we studied it and what did we discover? The, there is not a preference in the market for low vol. It's made up statistics by people who believe in the Sharpe ratio. So yes, if you divide risk by return and come up with risk-adjusted returns, low vol is better. Not because the numerator is higher, but because the denominator is lower. And somehow people think that volatility is risk. And if they do that ratio, they come out better. I mean, it's crazy. Right, Because if I can make 12% of return accepting the volatility and you make 6% return not accepting the volatility, who's better off at the end of their life? I mean, uh, I don't even get the concept. But what we did discover was that there was a penalty for high volatility. And when you actually do the the, uh, data analysis, it wasn't the preference for low vol that showed up but what you should have been doing is screening out high vol. And we discovered that if you historically screened out high vol, you could eliminate a lot of the bankruptcy risk that happened in portfolios. And so we've paid attention to that ever since. We modified our proposal to our proposition to consider something that actually made sense, that we actually experienced in life that when people stop knowing what's going to happen, volatility spike up. Managements actually do things that to try and lower the volatility because they're, they don't like it either. And that creates permanent impairment. Um, and so we avoid those stocks, or we are very thoughtful before we accept those kinds of risks. You know, we've studied the quality issue too. Now, I haven't done this in a while and you can take this data with a bit of a grain of salt, but it doesn't make sense, right? To say that, because people all define quality the same. Quality is a high return on capital, a low earnings volatility, and low levels of debt. So if I said to you, I have a great idea, I know how to make a lot of money in the stock market, buy stocks that have high returns on capital, no volatility and no debt. You would say, really? Nobody ever thought of that before? Um, And of course, that's not true, right? This is the stocks that everybody wants. Now they happen to do particularly well when interest rates collapsed because people put bond-like multiples on those kinds of stocks. But to conclude that you should now change your investment process because quality clearly works, defies logic. Now, what I will say is low quality, so if you do the opposite, if you say, I'm gonna buy companies with lousy returns on capital and high levels of debt and massively volatile earning streams, that's probably a losing strategy too. But in the middle is the sweet spot, not at the extreme of quality. Really, what you should be doing is being very, very careful about accepting low quality stocks into your portfolio where quality is defined by sort of standard metrics. If you seek high quality, uh, I'm pretty sure it's a losing proposition. It's a losing proposition conceptually because everybody's paying up for those stocks, but it doesn't mean it loses all the time. When it doesn't lose, like it hasn't in the last decade, you will, you will sort of get people saying you should change your process and wake up and smell the roses. And, but we won't if the arithmetic doesn't make any sense.
0: So, Rich, one of the um, realities of this kind of an environment is people give up. People have been long time. We talked about this earlier. Even the practitioners of value, after long anti-value cycles, give up. They shutter their firms, and so I, it's it's it feels like it's exactly the wrong time.
1: Look, you know, one of the most startling pieces of data you can find when you study the history of value cycles is that at the beginning of a recession is when value starts to outperform. And we looked at, I think we just published this, so we looked at data from the last 100 years in the US and also around the world, and in almost every case, value of the five years measured from the beginning of the recession start to outperform. Why is that, right? Why is that? Because The fear of the recession is what sent the value stocks tumbling. Why did value collapse in January and February and March of this year? Because everybody was afraid that this was going to happen, then it happened. And so when I measure, if you measure this cycle, assuming the recession started in the second quarter, our our strategies, our value strategies are all on the path to actually beginning that process of outperforming, and hopefully this is the turn in the cycle. And why does it happen? It happens because of human ingenuity. It happens because the companies respond, because the governments respond, because nobody wants this to happen, and human ingenuity wins. Just look at the third quarter earnings reports for cyclical stocks that got killed from a revenue perspective because their businesses shut down, like the airline industry shut down, the people that are surrounding those businesses, remarkable, really strong earnings reports. Nobody can believe, including us, how how well these companies actually responded to the crisis. You get a Pfizer, all of a sudden announces this, but they were working on it because there was a problem. That's what you do when you have a problem, you work on it. And most often you solve it. And that's what happens. And the market just doesn't see it that way. They say it's totally bad. It's never going to get better. The world has changed. And one thing that doesn't change, there's two things that don't change, arithmetic and human ingenuity
0: rich it's really amazing no matter what the time period no matter what the cycle the behavioral scientists are still right that human beings have very inefficient decision-making systems and trying to take advantage of that by using a systematic approach to value works i look forward to our next conversation rich thanks so much